0: Letter Eight. Part One. Of A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains. By Isabella L. Bird, Part One. Of Letter Eight. Estes Park. Colorado Territory. October 2nd. How time has slipped by, I do not know. This is a glorious region, and the air and life are intoxicating. I live mainly out of doors and on horseback, wear my half-threadbare Hawaiian dress, sleep sometimes under the stars on a bed of pine boughs, ride on a Mexican saddle, and hear once more the low music of my Mexican spurs. There's a stranger, heave arf a brick at him. Is said by many travelers to express the feeling of the new settlers in these territories. This is not my experience in my cheery mountain home. How the rafters ring as I write with songs and mirth, while the pitch pine logs blaze and crackle in the chimney, and the fine snow dust drives in through the chinks and forms mimic snow wreaths on the floor, and how the wind raves and howls and plays along the creaking pine branches and snaps them short off and the lightning plays round the blasted top of Long's Peak, and the hardy hunters divert themselves with the thought that when I go to bed I must turn out and face the storm. You will ask, what is Estes Park? This name, with the quiet Midland County sound, suggests park palings, well likened, a lodge with a curtseying woman, fallow deer, and a Queen Anne mansion. Such as it is, Estes Park is mine. It is unsurveyed, no man's land, and mine by right of love, appropriation, and appreciation, by the seizure of its peerless sunrise and sunsets, its glorious afterglow, its blazing noons, its hurricanes sharp and furious, its wild auroras, its glories of mountain and forest, of canyon, lake, and river, and the stereotyping them all in my memory. Mine, too, In a better than the sportsman's sense, are the majestic wapiti, which play and fight under the pines in the early morning as securely as fallow deer under our English oaks. Its graceful black tails, swift of foot, its superb big horns, whose noble leader is to be seen now and then with his classic head against the blue sky on the top of a colossal rock, its sneaking mountain lion, with his hideous nocturnal caterwaulings the great grizzly, the beautiful skunk, the wary beaver, who is always making lakes, damming and turning streams, cutting down young cottonwoods, and setting an example of thrift and industry, the wolf, greedy and cowardly, the coyote and the lynx, and all the lesser fry of mink, marten, cat, hare, fox, squirrel, and chipmunk, as well as things that fly, from the eagle down to the crested blue-jay. May their number never be less, in spite of the hunter who kills for food and gain, and the sportsman who kills and marauds for pastime. But still I have not answered the natural question. What is Estes Park? Among the striking peculiarities of these mountains are hundreds of high-lying valleys, large and small, at heights varying from 6,000 to 11,000 feet. The most important are North Park— Held by hostile Indians, Middle Park, famous for hot springs and trout, South Park, rich in minerals, and San Luis Park. South Park is ten thousand feet high, a great rolling prairie seventy miles long, well grassed and watered, but nearly closed by snow in winter. But parks innumerable are scattered throughout the mountains most of them unnamed and others nicknamed by the hunters or trappers who have made them their temporary resorts they always lie far within the flaming foothills their exquisite stretches of flowery pastures dotted artistically with clumps of trees sloping long light to bright swift streams full of red-waisted trout or running up in soft glades into the dark forest above which the snow-peaks rise in their infinite majesty Some are bits of meadow a mile long and very narrow, with a small stream, a beaver dam, and a pond, made by beaver industry. Hundreds of these can only be reached by riding in the bed of a stream, or by scrambling up some narrow canyon, till it debouches on the fairy-like stretch above. These parks are the feeding-grounds of innumerable wild animals, and some, like one three miles off, seem chosen for the process of antler-casting the grass being covered for at least a square mile with the magnificent branching horns of the elk. Estes Park combines the beauties of all. Dismiss all thoughts of the Midland Counties. For park palings, there are mountains, forest-skirted, nine thousand, eleven thousand, fourteen thousand feet high. For a lodge, two sentinel peaks of granite, guarding the only feasible entrance. And for a Queen Anne mansion, an unchinked log cabin, with a vault of sunny blue overhead. The park is most irregularly shaped, and contains hardly any level grass. It is an aggregate of lawns, slopes, and glades, about eighteen miles in length, but never more than two miles in width. The big thompson, a bright, rapid-trout stream, snow on Long's Peak a few miles higher, takes all sorts of magical twists, Vanishing and reappearing unexpectedly, glancing among lawns, rushing through romantic ravines, everywhere making music through the still long nights. Here and there the lawns are so smooth, the trees so artistically grouped, a lake makes such an artistic foreground, or a waterfall comes tumbling down with such an apparent feeling for the picturesque, that I am almost angry with nature for her close imitation of art. But in another hundred yards, nature, glorious, unapproachable, inimitable, is herself again, raising one's thoughts reverently upwards to her creator and ours. Grandeur and sublimity, not softness, are the features of Estes Park. The glades which begin so softly are soon lost in the dark primeval forest, with their peaks of rosy granite. AND THEIR STRETCHES OF GRANITE BLOCKS, PILED AND POISED BY NATURE IN SOME MOOD OF FURY. THE STREAMS ARE LOST IN CANYONS, NEARLY OR QUITE INACCESSIBLE, AWFUL IN THEIR BLACKNESS AND DARKNESS. EVERY VALLEY ENDS IN MYSTERY. SEVEN MOUNTAIN RANGES RAISE THEIR FROWNING BARRIERS BETWEEN US AND THE PLAINS, AND AT THE SOUTH END OF THE PARK, LONG'S PEAK RISES TO A HEIGHT OF 14,700 FEET with his bare, scathed head slashed with eternal snow. The lowest part of the park is seventy-five hundred feet high, and though the sun is hot during the day, the mercury hovers near the freezing point every night of the summer. An immense quantity of snow falls, but partly owing to the tremendous winds which drifted into the deep valleys, and partly to the bright warm sun of the winter months, the park is never snowed up and a number of cattle and horses are wintered out of doors on its sun-cured saccharine grasses, of which the grandma grass is the most valuable. The soil here, as elsewhere in the neighborhood, is nearly everywhere coarse, gray, granitic dust, produced probably by the disintegration of the surrounding mountains. It does not hold water, and is never wet in any weather. There are no thaws here, the snow mysteriously disappears by rapid evaporation. Oats grow, but do not ripen, and when well advanced, are cut and stacked for winter fodder. Potatoes yield abundantly, and though not very large, are of the best quality, mealy throughout. Evans has not attempted anything else, and probably the more succulent vegetables would require irrigation. The wild flowers are gorgeous and innumerable though their beauty, which culminates in July and August, was over before I arrived, and the recent snow flurries have finished them. The time between winter and winter is very short, and the flowery growth and blossom of a whole year are compressed into two months. Here are dandelions, buttercups, larkspurs, harebells, violets, roses, blue gentian, columbine, painter's brush, and fifty others, blue and yellow predominating and though their blossoms are stiffened by the cold every morning, they are starring the grass and drooping over the brook long before noon, making the most of their brief lives in the sunshine. Of ferns, after many a long hunt, I have only found Cystopterus fragilis, and the blechnum spicant, but I hear that the Terrace aquilina is also found. Snakes and mosquitoes do not appear to be known here coming almost direct from the tropics, one is dissatisfied with the uniformity of the foliage. Indeed, foliage can hardly be written off, as the trees properly so-called at this height are exclusively coniferi, and bear needles instead of leaves. In places there are patches of spindly aspens, which have turned a lemon yellow, and along the streams fair cherries, vines, and roses lighten the gulches with their variegated crimson leaves. The pines are not imposing, either from their girth or height. Their colouring is blackish-green, and though they are effective singly or in groups, they are sombre, and almost funereal when densely massed, as here along the mountain-sides. The timber-line is at a height of about eleven thousand feet, and is singularly well-defined. The most attractive tree I have seen is the silver spruce, Abies inglimani, near of kin to what is often called the balsam fir its shape and colour are both beautiful my heart warms toward it and i frequent all the places where i can find it it looks as if a soft blue silver powder had fallen on its deep green needles or as if a bluish hoar-frost which must melt at noon were resting upon it anyhow one can hardly believe that the beauty is permanent and survives the summer heat and the winter cold. The universal tree here is the Pinus ponderosa, but it never attains any very considerable size, and there is nothing to compare with the redwoods of the Sierra Nevada, far less with the sequoias of California. As I have written before, Estes Park is twenty-five and a half miles from Longmount, the nearest settlement, and it can be reached on horseback only by the steep and devious track by which I came, passing through a narrow rift in the top of a precipitous ridge, nine thousand feet high, called the Devil's Gate. Evans takes a lumber-wagon with four horses over the mountains, and a Colorado engineer would have no difficulty in making a wagon-road in several of the gulches over which the track hangs there are the remains of wagons which have come to grief in the attempt to emulate evans feet which without evidence i should have supposed to be impossible it is an awful road the only settlers in the park are griffith evans and a married man a mile higher up mountain jim's cabin is in the entrance gulch four miles off and there is not another cabin for eighteen miles toward the plains the park is unsurveyed, and the huge tract of mountainous country beyond is almost altogether unexplored. Elk hunters occasionally come up and camp out here, but the two settlers, who, however, are only squatters for various reasons, are not disposed to encourage such visitors. When Evans, who is a very successful hunter, came here, he came on foot and for some time after settling here, he carried the flour and necessaries required by his family on his back over the mountains. "'As I intend to make Estes Park my headquarters until the winter sets in, I must make you acquainted with my surroundings and mode of living. The Queen Anne Mansion is represented by a log cabin made of big hewn logs. The chinks should be filled with mud and lime, but these are wanting.' THE ROOF IS FORMED OF BARKED YOUNG SPRUCE, THEN A LAYER OF HAY, AND AN OUTER COATING OF MUD, ALL NEARLY FLAT. THE FLOORS ARE ROUGHLY BOARDED. THE LIVING-ROOM IS ABOUT SIXTEEN FEET SQUARE, AND HAS A ROUGH STONE CHIMNEY IN WHICH PINE-LOGS ARE ALWAYS BURNING. AT ONE END THERE IS A DOOR INTO A SMALL BEDROOM, AND AT THE OTHER A DOOR INTO A SMALL EATING-ROOM, AT THE TABLE OF WHICH WE FEED IN RELAYS. This opens into a very small kitchen, with a great American cooking stove, and there are two bed closets besides. Although rude, it is comfortable, except for the draughts. The fine snow drives in through the chinks and covers the floors, but sweeping it out at intervals is both fun and exercise. There are no heaps of rubbish places outside. Near it, on the slope under the pines, is a pretty two-roomed cabin, and beyond that, near the lake, is my cabin, a very rough one. My door opens into a little room with a stone chimney, and that again into a small room with a hay-bed, a chair with a tin basin on it, a shelf, and some pegs. A small window looks on the lake, and the glories of the sunrises which I see from it are indescribable. Neither of my doors has a lock, and to say the truth, neither will shut, as the wood has swelled below the house on the stream which issues from the lake there is a beautiful log dairy with a water-wheel outside used for churning besides this there are a corral a shed for the wagon a room for the hired man and shelters for horses and weekly calves all these things are necessaries at this height the ranchmen are two welshmen evans and edwards each with a wife and family the men are as diverse as they can be Griff, as Evans is called, is short and small, and is hospitable, careless, reckless, jolly, social, convivial, peppery, good-natured, nobody's enemy but his own, nobody's enemy but his own. He had the wit and taste to find out Estes Park, where people have found him out and have induced him to give them food and lodging and add cabin to cabin to take them in. He is a splendid shot, an expert and successful hunter, a bold mountaineer, a good rider, a capital cook, and a generally jolly fellow. His cheery laugh rings through the cabin from the early morning, and is contagious, and when the rafters ring at night with such songs as Do You Ken John Peel, "Old Lang Syne, and John Brown, what would the chorus be without poor Griff's voice? What would Este's part be without him, indeed?' When he went to Denver lately, we missed him as we should have missed the sunshine, and perhaps more. In the early morning, when Long's Peak is red, and the grass crackles with the hoar-frost, he arouses me with a cheery thump on my door. "'We're getting cattle hunting. Will you come? Or will you help to drive in the cattle? You can take your pick of the horses. I want another hand.' Free-hearted, lavish, popular, poor Griff loves liquor too well for his prosperity, and is always tormented by debt. He makes lots of money, but puts it into a bag with holes. He has fifty horses and one thousand head of cattle, many of which are his own, wintering up here, and makes no end of money by taking in people at eight dollars a week. Yet it all goes somehow." HE HAS A MOST INDUSTRIOUS WIFE, A GIRL OF SEVENTEEN, AND FOUR YOUNGER CHILDREN, ALL MUSICAL, BUT THE WIFE HAS TO WORK LIKE A SLAVE, AND THOUGH HE IS A KIND HUSBAND, HER LOT, AS COMPARED WITH HER LORD'S, IS LIKE THAT OF A SQUALL. EDWARDS, HIS PARTNER, IS HIS EXACT OPPOSITE, TALL, THIN, AND CONDEMNATORY-LOOKING, KEEN, INDUSTRIOUS, SAVING, GRAVE, A TEETOTALER grieved for all reasons at Evans' follies, and rather grudging—as naturally unpopular as Evans is popular—a decent man, who with his industrious wife will certainly make money as fast as Evans loses it. I pay eight dollars a week, which includes the unlimited use of a horse, when one can be found and caught. We breakfast at seven on beef, potatoes, tea, coffee, new bread, and butter— TWO PITCHERS OF CREAM AND TWO OF MILK ARE REPLENISHED AS FAST AS THEY ARE EXHAUSTED. DINNER AT TWELVE IS A REPETITION OF THE BREAKFAST, BUT WITH THE COFFEE OMITTED AND A GIGANTIC PUDDING ADDED. TEA AT SIX IS A REPETITION OF BREAKFAST. EAT WHENEVER YOU ARE HUNGRY. YOU CAN ALWAYS GET MILK AND BREAD IN THE KITCHEN, EVANS SAYS. EAT AS MUCH AS YOU CAN. IT'LL DO YOU GOOD. AND WE ALL EAT LIKE HUNTERS. THERE IS NO CHANGE OF FOOD. The steer, which was being killed on my arrival, is now being eaten through from head to tail, the meat being hacked off quite promiscuously, without any regard to joints. In this dry, rarefied air, the outside of the flesh blackens and hardens, and though the weather may be hot, the carcass keeps sweet for two or three months. The bread is super-excellent, but the poor wives seem to be making and baking it all day. The regular household living and eating together at this time consists of a very intelligent and high-minded American couple, Mr. and Mrs. Dewey, people whose character, culture, and society I should value anywhere. A young Englishman, brother of a celebrated African traveler, who because he rides on an English saddle and clings to some other insular peculiarities is called the Earl. A miner prospecting for silver a young man, the type of intelligent, practical young America, whose health showed consumptive tendencies when he was in business, and who is living a hunter's life here, a grown-up niece of Evans, and a melancholy-looking hired man. A mile off, there is an industrious married settler, and four miles off, in the gulch leading to the park, Mountain Jim, otherwise Mr. Nugent, is posted. His business as a trapper takes him daily up to the beaver-dams in Black Canyon to look after his traps, and he generally spends some time in or about our cabin. Not I can see, to Evan's satisfaction. For, in truth, this blue hollow, lying solitary at the foot of Long's Peak, is a miniature world of great interest, in which love, jealousy, hatred, envy, pride, unselfishness, Greed, selfishness, and self-sacrifice can be studied hourly, and there is always the unpleasantly exciting risk of an open quarrel with the neighboring desperado, whose I'll shoot you has more than once been heard in the cabin. The party, however, has often been increased by campers, either elk hunters or prospectors for silver or locations, who feed with us and join us in the evening. They get little help from Evans, Either as to elk or locations and go away disgusted and unsuccessful. Two Englishmen of refinement and culture camped out here prospecting a few weeks ago and then, contrary to advice, crossed the mountains into North Park where gold is said to abound, and it is believed that they have fallen victims to the bloodthirsty Indians of that region. Of course, we never get letters or newspapers unless someone rides to Longmount for them two or three novels, and a copy of our New West are our literature. Our latest newspaper is seventeen days old. Somehow the park seems to become the natural limit of our interest so far as they appear in conversation at table. The last grand aurora, the prospect of a snowstorm, track and sign of elk and grizzly, rumors of a bighorn herd near the lake, THE CANYONS IN WHICH THE TEXAN CATTLE WERE LAST SEEN, THE MERITS OF DIFFERENT RIFLES, THE PROGRESS OF TWO OBVIOUS LOVE-AFFAIRS, THE PROBABILITY OF SOMEONE COMING UP FROM THE PLAINS WITH LETTERS, MOUNTAIN JIM'S LATEST MOOD OR ESCAPADE, AND THE MERITS OF HIS DOG RING, AS COMPARED WITH THOSE OF EVANS' DOG PLUNK, ARE AMONG THE TOPICS WHICH ARE NEVER ABANDONED AS EXHAUSTED. ON SUNDAY WORK IS NOMINALLY LAID ASIDE. BUT MOST OF THE MEN GO OUT HUNTING OR FISHING TILL THE EVENING, WHEN WE HAVE THE HARMONIUM AND MUCH SACRED MUSIC AND SINGING IN PARTS. TO BE ALONE IN THE PARK FROM THE AFTERNOON TILL THE LAST GLORY OF THE AFTERGLOW HAS FADED, WITH NO BOOKS BUT A BIBLE AND PRAYER-BOOK, IS TRULY DELIGHTFUL. NO WORTHIER TEMPLE FOR A Deum OR GLORIA IN Excelsis COULD BE FOUND THAN THIS, TEMPLE NOT MADE WITH HANDS. In which one may worship without being distracted by the sight of bonnets of endless form and curiously intricate back hair and countless oddities of changing fashion. End of letter eight, part one.